we felt that Queens and Astoria deserve great architecture, that it shouldn't be reserved for Manhattan the way it has long been, and that it not only can be this Swiss army knife for storytelling, but that it could also be a work of forward-thinking design in and of itself. Hello, happy Monday, and welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. We're your hosts, Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Kavanaugh. So if you were to rattle off some of the most anticipated projects to hit New York skyline this year or next, you'd probably mention debuts like the Brooklyn Tower. It's the tallest building in the borough, and the design is a striking love letter to Art Deco. Or you could talk about the St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Church. The original was destroyed in the World Trade Center attacks, and its replacement is this glowing beacon wrapped in white stone and nestled beneath one World Trade Center. And you would be remiss to forget Wildflower Studios. There's just so much novelty associated with this project. The budget is $600 million. It's backed by Robert De Niro. It's set up vertically. And most strikingly is that it's Adam Gordon, who is the managing partner of Wildflower Limited's first foray into sound stages. Later on, you'll hear Susanna chat with Adam about what it was like taking on a brand new sector, what he expects to see from logistics as the economy continues to be in this state of uncertainty, and how we got in with De Niro. But for now, let's get into the news of the week. A little shameless self-promotion to start, but one of our most read stories last week is one that I wrote, New Yorkers fleeing Miami for New York once again. We touched on this last week a little bit, but the gist is that people want to get back to the city for the culture. The phrase one broker used is Miami to out. People are just kind of done with the party lifestyle. But what the piece asks is twofold. So one is, how many folks are still making that move? We've already seen this incredible migration back to New York over the past year. And two, will they end up in offices? So Mayor Eric Adams has said that workers getting back to their desks is necessary for the city's economic recovery. And he and Governor Kathy Hochul even created a task force to guide that process. We can expect to see those recommendations later this fall. And we're still seeing companies bet on the office market. This week, we saw VTS, which is a tech platform, score a $100 million investment from CBRE as part of its latest funding round. It's a platform that's used by office landlords to manage leases and tenant data. But what's interesting is that, you know, CBRE with this investment is saying, we see office landlords continuing to use this platform in the future. That's not going to go away. Manhattan also saw its busiest month for office leasing since the pandemic started. Just over 3 million square feet of office space was leased last month, which is the most since January of 2020. But that doesn't necessarily mean we're seeing this full recovery. You know, there's still a ton of available office space in Midtown. It's up 36% since March of 2020. But it is a pretty positive sign for landlords. It's saying that companies, you know, are looking to come back to Manhattan. They're signing leases for a new space. They're actively, you know, wanting to get back into the office. I think that it's just a question of, okay, how do we get our employees to occupy that space? Yeah, it's the thin line of pulling back without accidentally pushing people away. 
Also, the cautionary tale that is Compass just keeps on giving. This week, TRD took a look at the smaller firms that the brokerage had snapped up in 2018 and 2019, which were basically the good old days, and what it shelled out to pull those companies in. So that was about $300 million. The catch is that a lot of the spending was done with stock, which is now worth very little compared to what it was worth when the company debuted Along those lines, firms that invested in Compass, so SoftBank being one of them, have really taken a walloping. The Japanese investment giant, which was also a big investor in WeWork, disclosed last month that it lost more than half of its $1.08 billion investment. So if you're looking for a serving of schadenfreude, you can check out either of those stories. So last week when we started this segment of you know discussing the biggest news of the week, we mentioned that we wanted to go over some of the biggest deals. And I think that we have to start with the most expensive single-family home sale ever recorded in Miami. The Real Deal's Catherine Kalurgis had the scoop on who the buyer was, and it was none other than Ken Griffin, the billionaire behind Citadel. Now, Griffin is absolutely no stranger to dropping hundreds of millions of dollars on real estate, so it's not entirely surprising that he was the buyer. He bought a penthouse at 220 Central Park South on Billionaire's Row, notably one of the most expensive residential towers in the city, for $240 million and has spent more than $350 million assembling residential land in Palm Beach. So it seems like he's a pretty big fan of Florida. His firm, Citadel, the hedge fund, is actually opening an office in Palm Beach, and the firm itself has bought a bunch of properties in Brickell, which is Miami's financial center. So that covers the residential deals, but we also saw Goldman Sachs last week go into contract to buy a rental building near Brooklyn Bridge Park for $90 million, which is just the latest example of institutional investors really sinking their teeth into multifamily investments, a sector that has really boomed over the last two years. And another asset class that has really boomed is studio real estate. Institutional investors have flocked to building sound stages, investing in studios since the pandemic started as the streaming wars really started to heat up. So there are, I mean, there are so many examples of this. One is Blackstone buying a 49% stake in Hudson Pacific Properties soundstage portfolio in L.A. in August 2020. Hackman Capital Partners and Square Mile Capital, which are two investment firms, bought Silver Cup Studios in New York for reportedly $500 million. Now, newer firms like Wildflower are following suit and trying to build up their own portfolios, which is why we wanted to chat with them today. That's right. So let's get into the drive behind those buys. Here is Wildflower Limited co-founder Adam Gordon. Adam Gordon, and I am the managing partner of Wildflower Limited. We are an infrastructure-driven real estate firm based in New York City. We have two different active areas of focus. The first is urban infill industrial e-commerce logistics, and we are Amazon's most active e-commerce developer in New York City. And we are developing a film studio in Astoria called Wildflower Studio with our partner, Robert De Niro, and uh, the architect, Bjarke Engels, a big. So yeah, let's start with the latter. Let's start with Wildflower Studios, arguably one of the splashier projects coming to the city. How did you decide that Wildflower wanted to step into the soundstage space? Mm. 
I, I think like some of my career and uh, many people's careers, there's a bit of an element of a random walk. I had been friends with Robert De Niro for many years. He came to me with the idea of developing a film studio, a series of sound stages in New York City. And not knowing anything about the business, I went out with his oldest son, Raphael, who's a also a longtime friend and business partner. And we toured the sound stages that were available. And what we found was that the New York City sound stages really were, for the most part, tired old warehouses. And they weren't very attractive or happiness-inducing places to go to work, nor were they built to the modern specifications, particularly of, of streaming content, television shows that we would watch in the evening. So we got excited about it. And considering the future of storytelling in all forms, which includes not only serial entertainment, but AR, VR, gaming, and any other forms of storytelling that may present themselves in the future. And we wanted to create a permanent campus for people to come to work because right now, the studio business in New York City is very episodic, meaning that someone will rent space at one of the other great studios in New York City. Kaufman Astoria, Silver Cup, Steiner, Broadway Stages, and then they'll shoot a production and then they'll leave. We wanted people to go to work and then those jobs, of which we'll be creating well over a thousand direct uh, union jobs, those jobs would then populate any stage that was active. We also felt that we didn't want to be inhibited just by what had been done before. So we started looking at this business with fresh eyes. And we had the advantage of, at least on the wildflower side of knowing very little, to think about the future of storytelling in the physical form. And for us, New York City, we're very vertical. So we thought about stacking stages and BRK and his team at Big came up with this really innovative plan of an indoor street going to one level of stages, uh, raising the whole building to making it not only flood resistant, but also creating four and a half acres of parking in the middle of the city so that we didn't have to have trucks and vans and cars idling all day. And we felt that Queens and Astoria deserve great architecture, that it shouldn't be reserved for Manhattan the way it has long been, um, and that it not only can be this Swiss army knife for storytelling, but that it could also be you know, a work of forward-thinking design in and of itself. I wanted to pause here just to offer a visual of what Wildflower will look like when it's completed. So renderings show this kind of funky shaped seven-sided building that sits flush with Luster Creek. And if you're not overly familiar with Queens, that's the little inland in the East River that cuts into the top of the borough. The outside of the building will be checkerboard, sort of grayish toned. It looks like an optical illusion you'd see in like a kid's book. And that's the intention. The panels are arranged in a way where they'll create this animated effect as the sun moves across the facade. There are two terraces offering views of the waterfront and the Manhattan skyline. And then most striking for a soundstage is the height. The building will end up being seven stories. That's interesting about going vertical. Do most sound stages choose not to do that because it's difficult to soundproof? Or why has that not been done before? Well, for any of us that go out to LA, we see that it's not space constrained, meaning that these sound stages could sprawl over movie lots that could be tens or dozens or hundreds of acres. New York City, our, our average block size 
is you know roughly 80,000 feet. It's not very large at all. So we have this response, which is to go up, even though this is the first vertical studio in the world. Once we do it, it's going to seem very natural, just the same way taking elevators up an office building is natural today. In the, in the beginning, you know, of course, we didn't have that either. So I wanted to ask a little bit more about the virtual reality, augmented reality, gaming. I feel like that's cropping up everywhere. Curious, who do you see using that service when the studios open and how do you expect demand for it to evolve over the next several years? Nobody knows exactly what the demand drivers are, but we can say some things from our own experiences, meaning that behind Google, the largest search engine most of us use is Amazon. And why do we use it? You know, beside a series of customer-driven experiences, related to delivery and credit card payments being stored and being prime customers. What we also find is that Amazon has better information flow. And so when we think about augmented reality, it's an opportunity to visit an apartment with an iPad, with an iPhone, and learn about the apartment with information delivered right to us as we need it. That's sort of augmented reality. And what's virtual reality? Well, virtual reality is every time we daydream or dream at night. It's something that seems so out there, but is actually something that all of us have to do as humans every single day of our lives. So what we see is integrating these sorts of tools into the education and the marketing of virtually everything. And so who are the customers? It's potentially anybody who wants to sell anything, share anything, inform anybody about anything. And so even though serial production is you know, largely confined to the large media companies, um, the other expressions of storytelling um, have really broad implications throughout commerce and education. So throughout the pandemic, we've seen streaming perform exceptionally well. And then over the last couple of quarters, Netflix has talked about losing some subscribers. There's been some chatter about the market perhaps being oversaturated. Are those hiccups something that Wildflower is concerned about, given that you're launching a studio, or is there a sense that it's just a bump in the road and there's going to be continued demand for streaming going forward? Well, that's a wonderful, important question. I'm not in a position, I'm not a, a streaming analyst on Wall Street. So, you know, take this from my position as a developer and a content subscriber. There are many more options than there were before. People are thinking about Disney Plus, they're thinking about Hulu, they're, you know, thinking about a series of other subscriptions, and they're weighing and looking on an ongoing basis to see who's providing the content that they most use. And so, Demand is overwhelming. We can't begin to capture it. And New York City is very space constrained and studios are not the highest and best use for much of the available space. Of course, in general, everything in New York City is owned residential. And then there are exceptions, commercial, you know, retail, industrial. But the trends, because we have, you know, a really significant housing crisis, the trends are for residential eroding the manufacturing base, right? And the manufacturing space because the the needs are so uh, vital for the city. So I, I don't see us really outstripping demand. What I really see, and we've seen this because our other leading business is e-commerce development, is that developers need to understand something that the venture capitalists talk about a lot, which is product market fit. So for example, 
in our business, we have large multi-story of industrial over industrial warehouses that haven't leased. Bruckner Boulevard has been unleased for five years. That's because it's not what the tenants demand is. Tenants don't want it. And so there's demand and there's supply, but there has to be appropriate supply to meet the demand, right? The appropriate supply, 640 Columbia, Brooklyn Logistics Center, JFK Logistics Center, many, many developments that we and and, and other skilled developers have brought to market, have leased successfully, but then other projects that don't meet market demand don't lease. And so I think we have to be really careful to segment supply into supply that is addressing unfilled parts of the marketplace and then supply just built for other reasons. So you mentioned e-commerce and it seems like Wildflower really rode the industrial boom. Where do you see that sector heading over the next couple of years? I've seen some talk that Amazon might be backing off some of its industrial holdings, but clearly online shopping is still incredibly strong. We're also dealing with inflation. There's a lot of factors happening. So I guess for Wildflower, are you looking to acquire more logistics or do you like where you stand right now? Well, we are for the most part ground up developers because we need to build to specification for tenant demand. And there's a new building typology for modern e-commerce warehouses, which is very different than regular warehouses. You have in New York City, these delivery stations ranging from 80, typically 80 to 150,000 feet, which have streams of delivery vans going from one end of the building being loaded up in the center and out the other side. That specification is something that we can only achieve in new construction. So that's our first boundary, finding appropriate buildings. The, the second is to recognize you know, tenant demand right now. It's, it's very strong. Uh, for example, we're coming out of the ground with a project right near JFK Airport because a lot of tenants are being moved off tarmac and we see the opportunity there, but we don't build really recklessly. Amazon is taking a pause. My view of that is that they have been the most active tenant in history in the United States by far, and now they have to digest a lot of space. They're putting 10 million plus or minus square feet on the market, but if you look at their overall platform, it's a rounding error, and it's a couple couple of percentage points of spaces that didn't meet their needs. They have to not only accept all the space, they need to hire for that space, they need to introduced um, all their internal improvements. They need to find construction teams to build it. Um, They need to basically create an industrial network, a logistics network to serve it. So that process takes time. And Amazon is incredibly brilliant at developing an e-commerce network, but there's still a process where they need to ramp up. And so these kinds of waves are seen commonly throughout the tenant market it's more important on the e-commerce side because Amazon is so active. But there are many, many tenants in, in the New York City market and in the regional market that are looking for similar space. Because if you want to be a force in e-commerce and you're not Amazon, you, you're going to have to compete with Amazon. And they've raised the bar really high, as we all know, in terms of customer service and product variety, pricing, right? All of that, all the attributes of modern e-commerce. Last, to wrap up, I was reading your profile on Cranes from last year, and you touched on this a little bit during our conversation, but you described Wildflower's strategy as reacting to changes in consumer behavior that weren't already reflected in the city's landscape. So 
I'm wondering as things stand now, like, are there any up and coming ventures you're eyeing as unmet needs for consumers? This may sound uh, old fashioned or, or romantic, but we love New York City. We're New Yorkers. We, we live in the city. Uh, my kids were born and grew up here. And so we look around the city and we think about the opportunity in the private sector to create infrastructure to benefit people who live and work here. We've done uh, a lot of very design-centric residential. We've been active in e-commerce. We're really trying to innovate in the studio space, been very active in urban infill self-storage. So, you know, we'll continue to ply our trade. As always, Deconstruct is every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. So subscribe now. Next week, we're talking about cannabis real estate. Tune in then.